Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. There's a specter haunting the Western world, dear listener. The specter of groupthink, which is to say, no think at all. Perhaps you've noticed it too. A creeping, sterile correctness, an unbudging orthodoxy of thought and speech, the shallow posturing and desperate, conspicuous virtue signaling, followed by a relentless blowback for anyone who dares step out of line. Shouted down, deplatformed, cancelled, banned, doxxed, libeled and slandered. No doubt you've heard the terms by now. Maybe even witnessed someone you know being harassed by the mob, either online or in their regular workaday life. You see it almost nightly on the news, the collective Orwellian two minutes of hate, that performative act which goose steps under the pretense of compassion and tolerance. And now, in an age where words are considered by many to be weapons, and silence is tantamount to violence, even inaction can get you labelled a bigot, a somethingophobe, or worse. It's censorship of free inquiry, plain and simple. Intolerance of ideas gussied up as tolerance for behavior, as if complex human action could ever proceed without first formulating an idea of how to act. It's all the party, all the time, precisely the kind of blanket uniformity of opinion that puts the total in totalitarianism. Of course, none of this should be particularly surprising. Such deep-rooted suspicion is often born out of fear and uncertainty, and nurtured in the darkness of ignorance and insecurity. As the great political philosopher Hannah Arendt observed, totalitarianism appeals to the very dangerous emotional needs of people who live in complete isolation and in fear of one another. That was during an interview back in 1974, but Arendt may as well have been describing the state of affairs today in 2021, where entire populations are locked down, kept prisoners in their own home, and force-fed a steady diet of fear and loathing from every screen in sight. They are taught to resent the other, because in the zero-sum game of Marx's dialectical materialism, nobody can have something without having first denied it to everyone else. In this bleak, nightmare vision of the world, There are no win-win deals, only hierarchical power structures, where the exploiters stand atop the exploited, the masters upon the slaves, the oppressors upon the oppressed. Everything transactional in nature is viewed as a win-lose deal, where cooperation yields to coercion and, ultimately, voluntarism turns to violence. But how does such a state of affairs come about? What is the common corrupting agent that permeates the system, eroding trust, alienating individuals, and turning one man against another? Ah, for that, 
we need only follow the money. A properly functioning currency, one that owes its value in the minds of men to its utility and its integrity, operates as a kind of rule book for society. It is not only a medium of exchange, a store of value and a unit of account, but an implicit agreement between free and voluntary men that the rules are basically fair and universal, that an ounce of gold for one man is an ounce of gold for his brother, too. It's an understanding that the playing field is more or less level, and that it will remain level tomorrow, and the next day, too. In this way, a sound money is like the golden thread that stitches together all the voluntary interactions that go into building not just an economy, but an entire society. It involves the butcher as much as it does the baker, each of whom toils for his own ends and, as Adam Smith recognised, to the benefit of all. Sound money, as Bill Bonner explained to us in a recent conversation, is in this way no less than a fundamental building block of civilization. And it is upon this foundation that the pillars of economic prosperity and equality, not equity, are erected. And so it is worth noticing that where goes sound money, so too goes civil society. Where the Assignats went in the 1780s, so went the French monarchy in the 1790s. Where the Weimar Papiermarks went in the 1920s, so followed Nazi Germany in the 30s and in the 40s. And where the Venezuelan Bolivars went in the 2000s, so continues that poor, forsaken nation to this very day. The connection may not appear as obvious at first, but once you recognize this pattern, it is hard to unsee. And so when Bill and his co-author, Dan Denning, issued their latest trade of the decade, in which they underscored the increasing vulnerability of the US dollar, those paying close attention realized that the implications were far more wide-reaching than merely financial peril and the inexorable currency collapse. They saw, in fact, society itself at risk of coming apart at the seams. For more on the inextricable link between the dollar and the way of life it has come up until now to support, please join me and Bill Bonner for our full conversation up next. So Bill, you're joining us from uh, Nicaragua. Are you up there at uh, Los Perros right now or? Yes, I am. Yeah, it's delightful. Delightful. <laughs> but you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't know that given the is it a travel advisory from the US or an outright ban or what's the what's the No, it's not a ban, it's a travel advisory. Mm -hmm. And it says to travelers should reconsider. Did you because did you dutifully reconsider? <laughs> I I didn't reconsider yeah. <laughs> actually. But it's a it's a funny thing. It's like all these travel advisories and it's like it's like a lot of government information. It's, it's not exactly sufficient because it is true that if you were to go into Managua with a t-shirt that said, Daniel Ortega is a pig, <laughs> that you could have, you could have trouble. <laughs> but if you don't do that, right. then it's a very safe place, partly because it's a, he, he's, the police are pretty darn tough and they don't let anybody get out of line because they're so afraid that there will be uh, insurrection, real insurrection, not like the kind that happened at the Capitol building, <laughs> but they're afraid of it. And so they don't allow any anything and there's very little crime. 
very little mm. crime and be, the prisons are horrible. <laughs> you don't want to go there. And so for people who don't know or are not familiar with the geography of Nicaragua necessarily, you're nowhere near Managua right now. You're way out on the West Coast and it's very tranquil out there. Yeah, I'm way down south, south in uh, south on the West Coast, on the Pacific Coast. Yeah, just north of Costa Rica there. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's like, uh, yeah, and I can see Costa Rica in the mountains in the distance. So it's very similar to Costa Rica on the West Coast. Mountains coming down to the sea coves, beaches, it's very, very pretty and uh, spectacular, actually. It's a bit like parts of Northern California, I would guess, but but not cold like Northern California. And, and with a very dissimilar price tag to Northern California as well. Oh, very <laughs> dissimilar. <laughs> Uh, Very dissimilar. So I, uh, on the subject of contrarian indicators, uh, governments telling you where and where not to go, uh, I remember Anya and I, my wife Anya and I, came up with a, a little tagline, crisis vacationing, a few years ago, where we would actively seek out places where we were not supposed to yeah. go. And uh, it's a good way yeah. to avoid the queues and to avoid, you know, the heaving throngs in, um, you know, at, at the Louvre and, uh, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, well, I guess the place not to go now is Venezuela. I don't think anybody goes. Yeah, to Venezuela. I think there's a there is a point of diminishing returns to that idea. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I I floated the concept of going to Venezuela, and everybody said I would be absolutely crazy because the crime is just so bad. Mm. If they if they think you have any money at all, they kidnap you. This is the uh, the wonders of socialism in action. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Everybody creates right. a real workers. A real worker's paradise. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was speaking to our, our uh, mutual friend and uh, your one-time co-conspirator uh, on The Daily Reckoning a few weeks ago, Mr. Eric Fry, and we were kind uh -huh. of riffing about the, just the idea of contrarianism in, uh, in general, and I couldn't help but notice that most people to whom the moniker contrarian is uh, awarded tend to bristle a little bit at that probably because they feel that what they're doing is natural and that everybody else is contrary. Yeah. Why is everybody else yeah. being contrary to me? But uh, we got to talking about, um, you know, your career together. And obviously you've, you've been very successful at zigging when, when the crowd has zagged, uh, so to speak. And I, I guess that one of the uh, most conspicuous um, applications of that was your very first trade of the decade back uh, in 2000, which of course, yeah. for listeners uh, who are unfamiliar, that was a, a buy gold, sell the dollar, uh, or sell US equities rather. Sell stocks. Sell stocks. That's, Stock. that's right, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but you must have felt a little, uh, a little crazy at that time, given the, you know, given what had happened the preceding 20 years uh, in, in both gold and stocks. Yeah, well, that was the thing, though. That was a very rare instance in which everything was lined up so well for us that I thought, I really did think that was a bet that you couldn't go wrong with. <laughs> gold had been going down for 20 years, and the stock market had been going up for 20 years. I figured there's just no way <laughs> that's going to continue much longer. This is not, this is not at all the same as having some insight into market dynamics or you know any how companies are doing or new technology or politics or anything it's just plain old things getting so far out of whack that you're pretty sure they're going to get back into whack somehow right and so you and dan um 
Dan Denning on your, your Bonner Denning letter. Uh, I don't know if this is, I think this is in the public domain now, but you both have issued your trade of the latest decade or trade for the next decade. Uh, do you want to kind of walk us through that in general? And then if you can, the specifics of what's on the buy and sell side of that pair trade. Well, the thing is about the trade of the decade is I started reading uh, Richard Russell, uh, Dow Theorist, Dow Theory, Theory Letters, long, long time ago. He started publishing that in 1958. And he noticed that markets moved in big, long patterns and that most investors somewhere along the way just got tired, distracted or something or other and bailed out from what he called the primary trend. The primary trend is the trend that really moves things and really makes the big fortunes because you get in, say, the in 1980, that primary trend, you know, the market had been going down or flat for 20 years. But there, because of lots of other things that are going on, namely that uh, that uh, they had finally, that uh, Paul Volcker had gotten ahead of inflation, then we were set up for a huge primary trend to the upside. So you could then in 1980 have bought stocks, extremely inexpensive stocks, and just sat tight and you would have been just fine, would have made a lot of money over the next 20 years. And, and if you look across the, the, the crashes of 2001, 2007, 2008, and 2020, you could say, you could have just sat on those stocks for the next 40 years <laughs> and you would have done very, very well. Anyway, so Russell introduced this idea of the, of the primary trend. If you get on the right side of the primary trend, you just sit and you wait. And so the idea of the trade of the decade was try to find the primary trend, stick with it for 10 years. 10 years gives us enough, to be, enough time to be proven either totally wrong or to benefit from whatever insight we have. So anyhow, that's what we've been doing. And the trade this year, of course, 2020, 2021, marked the beginning of a new decade. So we had to come up with a new trade of the decade. And I think the key to this trade of the decade is recognizing that, that the dollar, the US dollar, is the most vulnerable part of the whole shebang of, uh, uh, of the financial system because the Feds can, are, and will uh, boost prices for bonds. They just go into the credit markets and buy bonds and prices go up. They can boost market uh, prices for stocks. First, they do it indirectly by buying, by buying bonds and thereby putting more cash into the system and forcing people into more, more risky propositions, more risky trades. And secondly, they do it the way the Japanese are doing it. They just go out and buy the damn stocks. <laughs> and so we know they can do that. And we know that when they do it, they do it pretty effectively. But what they can't do is control the price of the dollar. And it's one thing that no central bank ever can do. You're either controlling its quality, which means you've got to not print so many, or you're controlling the quantity. You, know, you print a lot of them because you want to use it for this, that, or the other, like to boost up stock prices or boost up bond prices. You can boost up the prices, but you can't do it and control the quality of the dollar. You can't do that at the same time. It's either quality or quantity. There's no other, no other choice. And we know, at least we, we know as much as we know anything about federal policy in the future, that they are determined, bound and determined, practically required to print a lot of dollars, a lot of dollars. There's no backtracking on that 
because all these programs they put into place, everybody's expecting that they will come through. You know, so a guy, a guy retires, he expects to get his Social Security check, even though the system is, is going to go broke in like 19, 2032, according to the latest study. But there's not just that. I mean, now they're bailing out. They started in 2009, to, uh, 2008, 2009, bailing out Wall Street. And of course, everybody was very happy with that because the money went into Wall Street, stock prices went up, and it seemed like a, a win, 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 win. <laughs> everybody. <laughs> but now they're bailing out Main Street. Mm. You know, now it's not enough to bail out Wall Street because now you get all these people running around who are desperate. Apparently, they're not really desperate because there's a long, complex story there too. But what the, the, the politicians have figured out that they need to put more money in the public's hands, right into the fiscal stream, mm. the fiscal fiscal channel of stimulus. And so that's a whole new ballgame, and it's going to require huge sums of money. They're talking now about paying reparations to, to former, um, the not the children, and not even the grandchildren, <laughs> but the great-grandchildren of people who were held in slavery. And now they're talking about a, a universal basic income. That's one of the it's the natural next step to uh, the stimmy checks, stimmy stimulus checks. The next step is just to do it in a controlled and order and reasonable way, and to let everybody know they're going to get a, st a stimmy check every month. So anyhow, this is a huge burst of spending, and there's no way they can do that spending without printing money. So we know that what's going to happen is the the quantity of dollars is going to increase, which means inevitably the quality is going to go down. So we're short the dollar. All right. So the, the short the short answer to the short side is uh, short the dollar. <laughs> and, short the dollar. Right, so, Just get out of dollars. And this is 10 years. This is not tomorrow. I'm not saying right. And this is not for a trader. This is 10 years. And that, that's, actually a, that's actually a very uh, important point to underscore there because the very mechanics of this kind of trade of the decade, and you've mentioned uh, multiple times before yeah. that it's it's not a substitute for you know a hardcore investment strategy, but it does help frame uh, the discussion in such a way as to invite people to take their noses off their day-to-day -day computer screens and and take a bit of a, a more of a macro understanding that the primary trends as you uh, as you mentioned. but so the, if we can be, as sure as we can be about anything that we're sure about, that the quality of the dollar uh, is in, uh, you know, inexorable deterioration. W what are you looking for on the buy side uh, of that pair trade? Well, now that's a bit more complicated, and I would be tempted just to stop there. And <laughs> say uh, <laughs> we know the weak link in the system is the dollar, so get rid of dollars. That's number one. Well, how do you get rid of dollars? Well, there are a lot of ways. You could just spend them. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what people people do down your way. In Argentina, they just spend oh, them yeah. and they begin by spending them on new cars and new televisions and new because they've got a last I heard is about 55% inflation rate. Which which hold so their spending. Which hold their value remarkably. Uh, as you know, Bill. It's, <laughs> but, um, oh yes, TV screens. <laughs> American American and Australian uh, listeners will be unfamiliar with this phenomenon because in economics 101, they would have learned that a brand new car is is the epitome of a liability. You drive it, drive it off the lot and yeah, you lose right. whatever. But here in Argentina, right. where you've got, as you say, 55% uh, inflation, uh, a, a new car is an asset that is going to preserve your peso wealth. <laughs> you, can, you can hope to pretty, sell it 10 years for a profit, which is quite pretty well, pretty well. 
And so anyhow, the Argentines know more about this than we do. And they know pretty, they know when the uh, inflation starts up, they got to get your get out of the peso. And in our case, we got to get out of the American peso. We got to get out of dollars. <laughs> and uh, we can do that just like the Argentines, just spend the money first on cars, entertainment, going uh, going on a vacation or something. And secondly, the main thing, if you have any kind of money at all in Argentina is to buy property. And that's uh, the property prices in Buenos Aires, you would think would be much cheaper than they are because there's no credit. Who's going to lend you money? Yeah. But people save their money and they save, they save their pesos and then put them immediately as quickly as they can into something hard asset, which is tends to be a, a property in uh, at least in the Buenos Aires area. <laughs> but and so people in America, too, can just pay attention to that. That's not a bad thing, especially at today's uh, interest rates. You can buy property and with a mortgage, something under three percent. Good gosh. I mean, that's going to turn out, I think, to be a very, very good place, good way to have your money. What else can you do? Well, the obvious thing is to buy gold. Mm-hmm. The, that uh, Sell the dollar, buy gold is the simplest easiest, no doubt about it, uh, trend. And a lot of people say, well, why do that? Why don't you just get Bitcoin? To which we've been saying, we don't know anything about Bitcoin. How did Bitcoin hold up during the Weimar inflation? We don't know. There wasn't any Bitcoin. How did it hold up during the Roman Empire inflation? We don't know that. But we do know gold held up pretty well. (laughs) So take another shot at gold, see how it works. And maybe maybe it'll turn out that, that Bitcoin will work. I doubt it, but who knows? Well, that's, we just don't know. That's something that our that's something that our friend uh, Chris Mayer has brought up with reference to the Lindy effect, which he's he's written about. And that's something I'll butcher it here, but it's something like um, the, the the length of time that a particular technology has been around is somewhat indicative of how long it's likely to stick around. And so, obviously, gold has right. you know however many millennia uh, behind it. Um, but of course, I guess for people who want to manage their their risk profile, and everybody has a different uh, has a different approach to this. Obviously, a a ninety nine year old man will have a, a different risk profile than a twenty one year old man. So, in the <laughs> one would hope. So, in the in the non dollar allocation of one's portfolio, uh, you might expect to see a whole lot of gold in the uh, the, the the older you get, and maybe just tiptoeing into a little more something a bit riskier like a crypto if you've got time yeah, to lose I, it and make it again you know a few times over yeah oh well, yeah we i uh i resisted crypto I, I didn't think it was a very good idea but i did curiously just curiously because you're talking about young people having a longer horizon on it uh we always thought of or i thought of crypto as a pedagogical <laughs> instrument <laughs> yeah. it was a, it was, a, it was a learning exercise, you know, because I didn't know how it worked. And I thought originally I did tell the children, my, my children, I said, well, you ought to get some Bitcoin, just see how it works. You know, I didn't know how it worked. I, I, in fact, I never could figure out how it worked, never have been able to. But my children who are smarter than I am figured out how to buy Bitcoin. And they did this about five years after <laughs> I told them they should not do it. And so the prices were already up. And I thought, wow, this is crazy. You're getting into Bitcoin. The prices, it was, it was then $2,500 per Bitcoin. I said, this is crazy. You know, it doesn't make any sense for it to be at that price. <laughs> so they bought it. And darn, we made a lot of money on that. <laughs> well, I had, I, I'm trusting they've, uh, they've, they're giving you their, I told you so's dad and that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, no, they're, 
So far, so good. But I, I think I, I'm going to have the last I told you so, because I think the thing's going to blow up. But who knows? Anyway, get, sticking with our storm yes. story here. When you get out of dollars, there are lots of places you can go. And it, it ten, ends up being kind of a, a personal situation because there are places where a farmer may say, well, I'm going to get out of dollars by buying the farm next to me. I can use that land or the guy I could use a new car or whatever it is. But from a general investment standpoint, talking about a huge uh, about asset uh, asset uh, categories, gold is the is the primary one, the, the obvious one, and then the whole metal complex, which has going been going up quite well. If you know what you're doing, you know you could get into a copper mining company, or uh, and it's the whole complex of anti-dollar. Uh, assets that you want, anything that does not depend on the value of the dollar. So the last thing you want is a U.S. government bond or even worse, one of those, uh, you know, uh, double, triple B minus bonds, <laughs> or the, the junk bonds. Those things are going to go bad and they're going to go bad in a big, big way. So, so what else did you do? Well, in our case, you know, and I, I deferred to Dan on this because it was not something I fully understood, but the energy complex looks very good to us, looks very cheap. It's been going down. Everybody bad mouths energy, at least fossil fuel energy, any kind of energy that's not green. <laughs> so, so Dan put on the other side of this trade thing to buy is uh, energy generally. And, uh, you know, with, through some ETFs or not specific companies, mm -hmm. but general energy, energy uh, investments. And I think that's probably good just because they've been going down for so long and are so disliked. So in every, every, practically every magazine, the country has written a story about why energy is, is over, finished, you know, we're not going to use it anymore. Right. Yeah. No, the, the no, the, I, I don't think that's true. No energy, the no energy future. Uh, and I guess the other side of that story, of course, the, you know, the horrible hydrocarbon narrative that's being peddled uh, by people who use those horrible hydrocarbons to heat their houses yeah. and drive their cars and power their businesses uh, is the runaway success over the last 10 years of the whole EV story, Tesla, and, and th that's kind of gone yeah. into, you know, what you might call peak lunacy uh, stratosphere uh, at the stage now where you can buy, I think I read somewhere, somewhere the other day that, you know, what, what's, what would be to stop Elon Musk uh, from buying up Ford uh, motor company for $45 billion. And yeah, you know, he could pay a, a, a sizable premium for that company and, uh, you know, get the distributorship and, uh, you know, the factories and high, high quality things and still have 10 times his money left over to, um, you know, to, to spread around yeah. into the crypto world. <laughs> but that, and, and then he'd have, he'd have a real company. <laughs> then he'd have a company that made cars, which would be yeah. <laughs> maybe worth something. So, so that that's potentially the other story uh, on the energy side is is we've got you know kind of run away with the green story, but I guess uh, very underperforming um, in in traditional uh, oozy yeah oozy oily oily story <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of stuff that get, makes your fingers dirty that stuff you don't want. right right but uh, no I think that that's is fundamentally uh, fundamentally a good trade I mean we'll see. I, I'm sure on the dollar side, we'll come out okay. On the energy side, I suspect we will, although I don't know. Mm. That's more, more, there's more speculation than that. So on the, uh, on the, the coming apart of, of the dollar or the, 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 
the impulse that you have to sell the dollar. Uh, Dan and I have spoken fairly extensively about this on this uh, on this podcast, but it, it seems to me that there's a lot more at stake than just the corruption and destruction of a, of, of a, a currency when we talk about uh, the demise of the dollar. And that's the, the social fabric in, uh, in which that dollar operates and the transactions that it stands between, between free individuals looking for win-win uh, kind of deals that, that you've written so much about. And I wonder now that you've come back from the US, if you could give us a little bit of an insight to those of us who live abroad, but who take some interest in what's going on in the capital of Western Civ, is the division, the, the coming apart of the social fabric that we read about in the newspaper and that kind of stuff, is that just, you know, sexy news headlines or, or is there a real sense of, 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 of division that, that you sense when you're, when you're in the States? Oh, it's, a, it's definitely a division yeah. and it, people are so touchy about mm. it that you, you can't even talk about it. You, they have all... There are a lot of ideas floating around, and I, and I think most of them are frauds. You know, where they're, they're, the people don't really believe them, but they find them useful for some some reason. And in a way, I I think Donald Trump really really did us a great disservice. <laughs> he he was in a position to kind of call out, and he was capable because he was that kind of a guy call out a lot of those frauds and stupidity and people loved it when he would do something but he really didn't understand it so he would just say a kind of, just a kind of gratuitous insults rather than digging in and explaining why some of these ideas that people have are totally fraudulent but now the totally fraudulent ideas are triumphant everywhere almost everywhere and uh they, that leaves a whole percentage of the population, like half, feeling that they're out of step, they're out of the, you know, they're out of their element. They don't know what to make of it. And I feel that way myself. That I hear people saying it doesn't really make any sense to me. I think that, that's probably not right. Well, just give you one example from the news I saw a day or so ago. Um, Bill O'Reilly, who's been disgraced for a number of reasons, but Bill O'Reilly. Uh, was commenting on uh, the speech by uh, Biden in which Biden said that, uh, you know, one of our biggest problems in the U.S. is the rise of white supremacy. And so Bill O'Reilly said, well, where are these white supremacists? And of course, he was condemned. Not it was condemned because you're not allowed to ask that question. It was just is if you he, he was because he asked the question, he would be considered a white supremacist himself. And he was, he was targeted and tarred as a racist, white supremacist and everything. Because the conversation is no longer an honest conversation. You can't ask questions. Mm. You can't ask, oh, how does that work exactly? You know, and, you, and you have to kind of go along with these ideas. And, and this is very divisive. Now, you're probably wondering, as everybody else should be, What's the connection between this, this social discord and the financial system? And the answer is it's not easy to pin down, but we saw it in when you, the dollar, I'm not the dollar itself, but the currency is a fundamental building block of civilization. It's how people compare one to another, how they distribute goods and services. One man owes something to another. One man earns something from another. One, one is 
free to do whatever he wants to build a factory and the other has to work day by day. But these relationships are not relationships that are, are uh, um, you know, written by the legislature. They're things that occur naturally. People are always working out the relationships between one and another. And this base, if it's based on a fraud, which is to say fake money, the whole thing falls apart. It falls apart because people don't believe it. They don't trust it. And you can see why right now the government is giving out billions of dollars. And I have friends, small businesses, and they say, oh, I got a loan for I got a loan for a million dollars. They didn't ask any questions. I don't even have to pay it back. I think, well, how did that What happen? kind of a loan is that? And where do I get one? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But apparently this kind of thing is happening all over the place. There's a lot of money sloshing around. And look at the Bitcoin millionaires. What did they do to earn a million dollars? And the person who's in Kentucky and who's been working hard all of his life, he looks at them and says, what the hell? What did I do wrong? What's going on here? How come I don't have that money? And so I think these questions, and, and, and you know, it's hard to come up with an exact uh, connection, knee bone to ankle bone and so on. But the, the, it's just that the fundamental uh, a society has what uh, you, know, you call the social contract. And I don't like that word because there is, really is no contract, but, but it's an understanding. It's an understanding where people believe that it's fundamentally fair mm. that so-and-so gets rich because he worked harder, because he has friends, because something is fundamentally fair. And when it's not fundamentally fair, a lot of people get very annoyed and they start coming up with crazy ideas, you know, like QAnon conspiracy stories to try to understand something which they don't understand at all. Nobody seems to really understand what's going on and no, because nobody wants to, uh, this is my theory about it, the economists that we, we read are almost all Keynesian economists. You know, they think they can manipulate an economy and they're not going to understand. They're, it would not be in their interest to understand that it doesn't work that way. And so do themselves they out never of job. really want <laughs> Exactly. They never really want to dig in very far. And so they're all, all over the place. You will see articles about how capitalism fails. Mm. And most recently, because the Texas power grid went down, showing us once again that capitalism failed. Practically every day, by the way, there's a report about how people are getting richer and some people are getting poor and how poor people are. And it's true. A lot of Americans are very poor. The middle class is, is getting squeezed. It's getting squeezed out. And so people say, well, capitalism failed. But these aren't failures of capitalism. These are failures of a phony money system. Phony, almost all of it. Obviously, there are lots of things that we can't understand or control. But there are things like the phony money system that we do understand. And practically none of the economists who bother to rant and rave and complain, moan about how awful the inequality is, bother to look at what makes it that way, which is precisely the phony money system. Mm -hmm. well, now, something like we figure something like $35 trillion has been transferred to the top 10% of the population via this phony money system of pumping up the value of stocks. But nobody mentions it. Yeah, I was speaking with a gentleman the other night who put it similarly. He said that money, if it's working properly, if it's an honest kind of money, like gold, for example, a free market money in which people have um, conviction that an ounce is worth an ounce is worth an ounce, 
that acts as a kind of rule book for society because people are able to keep score. Okay, this person, you know, dug that many trenches for me and I mowed his lawn and we did this. So this is kind of a scorekeeping um, mm-hmm. uh, ledger of accounts. But when that ledger of accounts gets thrown out of the window and when nobody has any, I don't I hesitate to use the word faith, but when no one has conviction in the validity of the underlying bill of exchange, then it's like throwing the rule book out the window and all of a sudden it becomes yeah. uh, anacracy. I'm going to not use the word anarchy. I'm going to not misuse it, but, <laughs> but that's, that's, and that's when, yeah, we see, I think it's probably no, uh, you know, no, no coincidence that it was, you know, you mentioned the Weimar Republic before it was the corruption and destruction of the German mark that preceded, you know, what hap- what came about in the 30s. And of course, pre-French revolution, we saw the, the assignats, which were debased and, and um, you know, defrauded, the people were defrauded. And then you had, you know, heads on pikes and that kind of stuff. So I guess the question for people uh, who are listening to this and who are watching the price of, of ammunition go up and, <laughs> and precious metals, uh, you know, the, the spread between the spot and, uh, and the physical price, um, they're wondering, maybe how much longer we have before we see heads on pikes in uh, the capital in the US. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have any insight? Yeah, there? <laughs> I don't know, but I thought that that uh, insurrection in, in, in the Capitol building was such a, a farce for, or these uh, commentators saying we've had a, a revolution. Mm. It was a, an attempted coup. Ugh. Boy, if these were coup, if this was a real coup, you would have had heads on pikes. People don't go into an into a, invade a national building for a coup, taking their cell phones with them and taking selfies. <laughs> the whole thing was just preposterous. Yeah. These people need. These people need. But that's the way the news works. People need to come down to Argentina and see a president being helivacked off the rooftop of the Casa Rosada to, <laughs> with yeah, mobs and everything. It really works. Yeah, it really works. We know how to do a do a coup. Damn it. Um, okay, so uh, I'm cognizant of the time here, Bill. I'm appreciative that you've uh, that you've given us. Uh, some of your some of your Tuesday. Uh, you're in Nicaragua right now. You're making your way down to uh, South America. When can we expect to enjoy an unhurried lunch with you down here? No, I'm not going to South oh. America. I'm going to Ireland. I see. Yes, I'm going home. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to my home in Ireland. Yes, I haven't been there for a little while, but it's time for me to get back. I see. So missing uh, missing Buenos Aires this time around then. Yes, this time. I expect to get down there later on in the year, I hope to, but I'm not quite sure. It's such a pain traveling now. I don't really want to go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I, I can't imagine much good is going to come out of a, a closed-down, lockdown world where we're, we're not sharing anything. I mean, the, the, the proponents of uh, you know, holding people up to charge of cultural appropriation are going to see what happens when no cultures share anything and everybody goes into <laughs> extreme yeah. isolationism. I can't imagine that's going to be any good. <laughs> But uh, actually, on my, I've got this right next to me, but uh, it's my 40th birthday today. And I just happened to pick up this book, which was published on this man's 40th birthday. I didn't, I didn't know that. Well, how about that? There you go. Yeah. So look at that. Well, well happy birthday, oh, Joel. Yes. What are, you, are you going to go out to dinner or something? What's, yeah, my, my, what's, what's my dear wife has, uh, has all kinds of celebratory uh, activities planned for me today, none of which was me. Uh, shooting away to do a podcast, but I'm thankful to her for giving me the time. And I'm thankful for you too, for, for, for making the time. So, well, my pleasure. Say hello to Anya and have a nice birthday. Absolutely. Will do, Bill. Looking forward to seeing you again soon, mate. Cheers. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.